0: Welcome back to another episode of the Bodybuilding Done under podcast. I am DC and today I'm joined by Lawrence N D Y. Unfortunately, we don't have Jack today. We uh we reached out to him actually and uh just you know tried to figure out when he had plans of, of coming back to the to the BDU podcast. And he's just left us on scene. So I, I don't know what's uh what's going on there. Just you know, it says red foot full stop.
1: Yeah, i don't know what's going on over there, man. Yeah, he he's hasn't just obviously- my messages for the past three weeks. He, he, he's serious about it now. Phone's off. He's in the zone. He's in the camp.
0: Yeah, 100%. Well,
1: I don't know. Like You guys have been going back and forth on messages, but I
2: actually managed to sneak in a brief FaceTime with him. And uh, there's a couple things I noticed. Like, one, his neck, it must have got to be double in size. Like, I couldn't believe how wide his neck looked. Um but he was very cagey. Like he he didn't want to show like any of his physique, which I thought was odd. And then another thing was like he had this terrible cough. Um I just unlike any cough I've ever heard. Um and he didn't seem sick at all. Like he Mm -hmm. wasn't congested, didn't have a sore throat. But yeah, he said he like since um arriving at Pathos in Cyprus or whatever he's made up, he tried to play it off. But obviously we know it's actually Kuwait, but he said since he got there, um, he's had a really bad cough. Um, but and he's he said smelling he's... really bad too. Really, yeah. Sweaty. But he said he's mm. also like super strong. Um, mm. Didn't you say he was like double,
0: double as hairy as well?
2: I look. I mean, he's hairy at the best of times, but he, he certainly <laughs> looked hairier. Uh, but yeah, it was just that cough that threw me off. Hey, mm. Thought it was a photo of Chewbacca at that time.
0: Yeah, hundred well, percent. Yeah. just well, speaking a of goes, photos,
2: right? that that picture that he shared on his story was wild Is yeah the private story the close friends yeah he's yeah. Tacked on a lot of muscle oh yeah yeah and it, <laughs> odd that he wears the bow tie when he's posing but oh well he's a he's a weird guy hey eh? well, at least he's his, enjoying himself right exactly <laughs>
0: yeah. well uh let's uh move on from uh from jack today obviously we miss him but um What's happening, boys? Where's uh where are we at with our training, our nutrition, our prep and or off season? You can start, Lawrence.
2: Mate, things are very good. I am feeling fantastic to be honest. I'm 12 weeks out this Saturday, which Ooh, is exciting. So three months mark. Mate, I know, it's crazy. And I'm feeling remarkably good for you know being 12 weeks out, if I'm being completely honest. I think part of that is because I've just come off the D load. So I had a just like last week couldn't have asked for a better deload just in terms of like, you know, getting to wind down with some, you know, just chill time, like with Gemma and just like my sleep was off the charts, like just sleeping so well, recovering really well. So I feel great this week. We have made like a small adjustment to macros. um, And I mean, quite small. Like I think we reduced by 25 carb on a training day, and then by, yeah, 25 carb as well on a non-training day. So that's the only change we've made. So we rode those initial macros out for a good eight or nine weeks, made another little drop. I was telling DY in the gym today that I hit a new low this morning of 85.5. So, you know, we're probably around that six kilos from stage weight shooting point. And yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty happy with how things are looking. So man, it's, it's good. I had a really good leg session today. I had a really good upper session yesterday, and all in all i'm just i'm loving it it's sort of Mm. that stage of prep where you lull yourself into the idea that you could just do this year round and you could just look shredded and look you probably could you wouldn't make any progress um but you would look good so i feel Mm. like i'm in that like influencer stage where i'm just like you know i'm nice gym lean um i would probably say i have like my, re- my check-in photos that have just gone by because I was coming off the load I probably looked a little bit flat. And I was straight into DIY's DMs. I was like, dude, flat this week. Let's get to the, the house of the bucket and let's smash some zingers down. But Joey was like, it's only one check-in photo where you've looked flat. If you're still flat next week, three zingers straight down the goal.
0: Yeah. Mm, straight away, no questions asked
1: yeah you're gonna so, have to bring in like the uh the chips and everything too though just to fill up the uh sodium and the carbohydrates
0: mm, don't well, worry about you adding know, sodium to your actual food just go straight yeah, for the dinner yeah. so it's got yeah, sodium yeah. in it right so yeah, yeah.
2: but also <laughs> to balance out the sodium you got to get the mash and gravy because in the potato is the potassium so once again exactly like, i mean people think we're guessing
1: but it's the science baby like come on <laughs> like now. The Colonel was a very smart man when he put together that zinger box. He has all the assortments in there, everything you need to be a top tier bodybuilder. Mm, oh, it's, not,
0: it's not the uh, the herbs and spices for flavor; it's for gains. That's
2: <laughs> exactly the Colonel. <laughs> the Colonel has to have peaked at least a handful of bodybuilders in his time. I'm just yeah, gonna say. Did you see Lee Priest? <laughs> oh, Mate, it's it's <laughs> a, it's, a, it's just a no brainer at this point.
0: Which bodybuilder was it? Whereas the picture of them just eating an entire bucket of KFC? That's
2: was Lee, that... Priest.
1: Yeah. Is it Lee it was... Priest. Yeah. yeah, I, I, th- I think he used to go to like in his off season, he used to pretty much go to like KFC post every single workout. And you would just get like a 12 piece feed or whatever it is. A 10 piece feed. And just, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Dude. It up. Lee Priest. And look at him. Have like, you listened
2: to him on like some podcasts? Like his stories? Are we Mate? getting him on? we or we should but i don't know we might have to change the uh the rating of the show we might have to put that explicit tag on if we got lee priest on my oh my he's not shy about you know sharing some stories from his past the man's been through quite a bit
0: (laughs) Mm, i I haven't
2: haven't listened to any of his 40s actually yeah there's one with fuad and yeah doesn't hold back hey the man's
1: seen some stuff
0: Mm. i might have to add this to the uh, the podcast list
1: yeah, I know. It's it's gonna be I'll be able to uh come back next week and let you know about it.
0: A little bit more educated.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you say that though, Lawrence. Like, you know, when you're sitting there like ten to twelve, maybe even fourteen weeks out, you're sitting there and you're like, damn, I'm looking shredded and I'm not even hurting. Like I could definitely maintain this is where I want to be in the off season. And it's just it never happens. It's just it's yeah, five, yeah, I'm so years.
0: glad you brought that up because I feel like that's a thing that almost every competitor goes through, right? where they're just like maybe just before or maybe just starting to experience a little bit more of that diet fatigue but it's like manageable it's not something that is non-livable. like you could tolerate it you probably don't recognize perhaps how food focused you actually actually are like comparative to the off season and therefore it's like i'm i'm cool i could live here like i'm good but then like you said dy <laughs> the recovery diet comes into play and it certainly is not not straight back to that position in happy days like
1: And I think a lot of it as well is like, they think they can hold that body comp after, but it's like every little, all their ducks are in a row when they're like at that stage, like they're eating meals at the right time. They're getting optimal sleep. And it's like, as soon as you start implementing a social life in there and all of that, everything starts to crumble and it it doesn't fall in place. Like right now, when they're sitting at 10 to 12 weeks out, when they're feeling amazing, they're looking amazing. Chances are they're ticking every single box at a hundred percent. So it's Mm. like when you get to the off season and you're running at 80, 90%, you know, it's not that easy to hold that.
0: Mm. And I think I just want to preface there that like, I don't think everybody is feeling amazing at, at 12 weeks out. I feel like some people are certain, certainly feeling the diet effects at 12 weeks out. Like yeah. I think back to, I don't want to paint that picture that people are listening to this podcast and being like, oh my God, I'm 12 weeks out. Like I'm dying right now. What the hell? What is Is this Lawrence guy built different? What's going on? Like that's obviously yes. not the case. Like yeah. I, I feel like... Well, I've been- <laughs> We well, did rip. rate himself a nine out of, of 10 year.
1: genetics and he's sitting here on 3,800 cals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. On a rest day.
0: <laughs> I'm just going to picture Lawrence at like two weeks out, just like eyes sunken in, just absolutely like dragging ass and being like, yeah. no, man, I'm not feeling it. Like, I feel great. Don't <laughs> yeah. even string a sentence together. Like, yeah,
2: yeah, but it's interesting what you mentioned, DC, about like, you, you wouldn't, like I wouldn't describe myself as like food focus, but it's also hard to negate that where it's like, you are I would almost say it's like food aware like compared to the off season like I, I I'm not at the stage where it's distracting me at all where I'm like you know like looking at the clock and I'm like, oh man like I'm so hungry let's get this meal because I still wouldn't say I'm like hungry between meals like by the time the meal arrives, I'm like, yeah, sweet, I'm ready to eat this and by the time I finish I'm like, oh yeah, I could have had a bit more there but then it passes and I'm pretty good and I'm on to the next task but you know, I'll do. I find myself doing little things now where I'm like, if I'm doing some steps and I'm like, yeah, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. I'll go like, oh, I'll just plan out my food for tomorrow, which is something I wouldn't do in the off season because generally off season I'll just do it as I go because it's probably going to be the same thing anyway. So I guess it's that just that little bit more awareness around mm. food. But look, I think it is a good good thing to mention. Like, you know, I'm not like some like freak that is going to be doing it easy for the whole of prep. But I I certainly think that you have to remember, you know, this is my fourth contest prep. So like, I've been here, I've done this, I know what to expect. And over that time, Joey and I have also refined our approach. So if you're like a first time competitor, you know, preying on my downfall, because you're like, this guy's not even feeling it. Just like, I will get to that point. If I don't get to that point, chances are I'm not lean enough and I'm not going to do well. So hey, the joke's on me.
0: Mm, I think everybody feels it at different stages. Like- I think back to my prep and i feel like the the hardest the hardest weeks were probably like 12 8 and 5 i feel like if i think back uh, nicole and i had to move so like we had to like pack up all that stuff and vacuum and all that sort of stuff associated with a bond clean right and uh, I just remember that that just not being enjoyable whatsoever. So it's like I could attribute a certain aspect of my prep where I needed to be more physically active, and that was tough. But like I think everybody's in a different part of their journey. Some people might be, you know, a touch leaner. Some people might need to dig a little bit harder at this stage. As like, I think as long as you all funnel into the you know the position at the end in which you're all at your stage conditioning requirements, then then you're in a good position,
2: right? Yeah one one i did get an x-ray recently um and one thing that might explain it is that the x-ray did show that i got that dog in me <laughs> if that's if that's anything worth yeah. considering and
1: the be, issue is it, was a, it. it was a chihuahua so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: hey they're yeah. feisty man they've got fight so yeah.
1: well mate i've seen him on a 20 rep hack squad he's biting back that's for sure
2: <laughs>
0: yeah
1: <laughs> and yapping limb
0: shaking like yapping. yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was nice for the boys to choreograph that and set that situation up for me um it was of course all for the camera it was all fake i'm a, I'm a pretty yeah. good actor though on that on the hack mm. mm.
0: actually speaking of uh of training intensity what what were you listening to for that set like do you what are you boys listening to in uh you know let's say you're you're going for a top set or something like that on a hack whatever it may be what's what's blasting through the headphones at that point in time
1: oh if i'm listening to music uh you know iron asylum down at um on the gold coast dc Mm. you've trained there a bit with yeah 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 Yeah, i actually got their r&b like slash like old school rap um playlist and it's just got like the absolute bangers like all all the old school like um two-pack like biggie smalls and stuff like that and they pretty much like compiled of like a a pretty much like a full playlist of like 300 400 songs of just like the og stuff and like if i'm listening to music i'm normally listening to that um yeah it's i don't know it's just the old school gangster rap like you know it ain't the same mm,
0: mm. so I, I thought you'd be listening to like so fresh 2015 or something like that mm, yeah that they right? do have or... that
1: playlist there too.
0: there <laughs> do you always remember the so fresh cds
1: Yeah, yeah
2: sounds <laughs> of summer or, or yeah. now? Did you guys have now? Or it'd be like now 48 and it would be like all the top hits of that year? Did you guys have those CDs? I don't, I don't
0: remember them, but I definitely remember So Fresh. Yeah. Do you remember now, I I don't think.
1: No, I don't remember now. Uh. But I'm that sure maybe... it would have
0: been the same, right? Basically. Oh,
2: for sure. Yeah. Always like the, the, the hits. But I think for me, I, I tend to differ when it comes to like top sets and back off sets a little bit. So if it's a top set, I'll probably go something like a bit more, you know, beat, a bit more aggressive. Like I would say probably the go-to at the moment is a song called Sharing Locations by Meek Mill. That's that's going quite hard in the in the paint at the moment. But then for a back off, of I'll go
1: songs.
2: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um but for the back offs, I'll normally go something that is a little bit more soft pace. So I think I think actually for that set. I was listening to a song called Believe by Mumford and Sons. So mm. I tend to have a little bit of variety in there. So, mm. um, but I've also been trying to like, you know, manage the top sets and like, as soon as I'm finished, sort of the big, big exercises of the session, I'll normally just put on like a, a general playlist of of stuff that I enjoy it's normally still rap of some description, but I try to stay away from like those top set songs. And it's interesting, I think there was Mike Zerdos was on Revive Stronger recently talking about music and training performance. And it does seem like the the main thing to consider when picking gym music is enjoyment and like whether or not you actually enjoy what you're listening to. That seems to be the the primary thing to make sure you're including. It doesn't necessarily matter as much around like the beat and the metronome and stuff. It is more just whether or not you like it.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Like I find for myself, I need like a, a, a routine metronome. Like I need a very consistent beat in order for myself to be in a flow state. Like I find it needs to be drum and bass or like some sort of techno or something like that. So I can just almost go into like a bit of a mental trance and just like move through my workout like that. Whereas I know some people need more lyrics in their their music in order to feel that flow state or you know things like that i think obviously we're all so different as to what what kind of finds that perfect uh balance of like performance and arousal right because that's ultimately what we're what we're striving for
1: so what's the song though dc you gotta well i'm usually listening
0: to like let's say if it's drum and bass it's like friction like a mix from friction probably not many people know what i'm saying right now but Usually I'm listening to a lot more like SoundCloud these days, like mixes that go on for like two hours. So I can basically listen to an entire mix across a two hour span. Like I'm not really listening to individual songs or anything like that. I'll just put a mix on that will just like cycle through within uh, within SoundCloud.
1: Just got to get those SoundCloud like DJ mixes from like EDC Las Vegas or something. Like The whole workout, you're sitting there buzzing for like two hours.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or BBC One, right? yeah. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Awesome, boys. Well, uh, let's move on to the next question. We're actually talking a little bit more about this off air, but how do you boys walk work through limb asymmetries? So let's, uh, here we go. We got uh, Lawrence just like clapping his hands, warming
1: War- them up. Yeah, yeah warming them
0: up for the uh, the knowledge is just about to drop. Let's uh, let's hit it, man. What, what's your thoughts there? Like, do you have any sort of strategies in place to, let's say? you're doing some sort of horizontal press and you notice that one limb is is a bit stronger than the next. Is that firstly, is that a big concern for you? And secondly, are you adopting, you know, some really strategies in place to appease those?
2: Well, I think that, you know, if we're thinking about unilateral training, which is when most of these asymmetries are going to come about, I think that the general principle of you know, doing the weaker side first and then matching with the stronger is always what you need to do. Because if you just think about it logically, if you do the inverse, then you're going to do the stronger side first and then be unable to match with the weaker. So you're doing more volume and more work with the side that is already a bit better, which just doesn't make any sense. But I think that what DY and I were talking off air about a little bit was more so like asymmetries between let's say like opposing muscle groups or like agonist antagonist so like one thing that you might hear about in some circles of like injury management is like the push to pull ratio or you know someone could be doing quote-unquote too many back exercises and not enough anterior exercises and this causing like some sort of mismatch so i don't want to speak for dy completely i'll let him respond
1: yeah you you respond first mate and then I'll, I'll comment all right all right um well first off how I, I would pretty much like run my asymmetries like what lawrence would like lawrence suggested like in terms of let's say one arm's bigger than the other i'll always do my smaller or weaker arm first and then i'll alternate to the other one and pretty much match reps but i've got another thing here lawrence i was like let's say you do your weaker arm first and then your other arm you can do way more reps and it's not even closer to failure would you still stay on the same reps? Because that's how I would normally do it to at least try and even it out. Um, but I'm here keen to hear your point before I then go into my hypothetical question that I asked you before.
2: So like, let's say you finish the weaker arm and it's like an RPE 9, but the stronger arm's like an RPE 6. 5. Yeah. 5. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I think you've got no choice. Like, I think you've got no choice but to keep it the same because... Like what's the alternative? It's like, you know, once again, doing more volume. And at the end of the day, I would be surprised if that came to play in practice, especially for someone who's like an intermediate or an advanced trainee, because I have certainly noticed that the biggest thing that has corrected my asymmetry side to side has just been time. Like the longer I've been training the closer side to side that I've been and it's at the point now where it's quite rare for me to be more than two reps apart for certain exercises. So yeah, I, I think you've got no choice but to just maintain that lower RPE.
0: Mm, I think that's, I, I I would agree with that as well. I think often people try and adopt very specific strategies to, to work on one versus the other. Like the common question is, should I be doing an extra set on this arm versus not? Or should I be doing more reps on that single arm? And I think the best bet, if it's, unilateral you would start with the let's just like you said you start with the limb that's perhaps the weaker side just so you can not be semi-fatigued i think there is some fatigue transfer even between limbs right so uh if you were to start with your non-dominant side first it'd probably be ideal and then just time spent working on on this asymmetry with unilateral based movements so you know if you've got a clear asymmetry between left and right arm and you're always running a barbell bench press maybe it might be beneficial to rotate some dumbbell work in there or perhaps some I say lateral base mach- machines and things like that. And eventually I think over time they just kind of fix fix one another. But uh let's jump straight to you, DY. I know you're on the edge <laughs> of your seat. It's about to throw out the I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm you.
1: about to get roasted by physios left and right. Ah yeah, yeah, nah. yeah. uh no. So I asked Lawrence like pretty much like a hypothetical question. I was like, do you think over, like, let's say a 10 year period, if you were to do 20 sets on like chest exercises and all of this compared to doing maybe like 10 sets on like your posterior, like your back, your hamstrings, and then not only that, you also worked at an office job, if it would have um, an impact on like, let's say, your posture, your injuries, and so on, like that, and maybe even training to an extent? Because I feel my personal opinion is like, if I was to do double the amount of sets on my anterior to posterior, then not only that, maybe neglect training abs. I feel like over a 10 year period of that compounding, I feel like myself, that would probably lead to an injury. And that's what I think probably has caused a decent bit of my injuries is because I did buy so much of what you could see on the front compared to the back. And then I asked him his point of view. And if he thought that that would have any effect or what his opinion was, and if it would in his opinion, even though there might not be scientific literature if that might lead to an injury.
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. So the first one would be, you know, this commonly referenced, like combination of factors. And it's interesting you mention the office worker example, because one thing that circulated like the injury management or rehab sphere for a while, DC, maybe you would have come across it as well as like, This notion of the i think they call it like upper crossed syndrome um where it was a combination of i think tight pecs weak abs and then tight hip flexors and basically this idea that all of those things combined would just like cause pain Mm,
0: well there's like upper cross and lower cross syndrome that's what it's called yeah so it's like pretty much yeah just like you said it'd be like Uh, weak back tight chest for upper upper and then in terms of like the the lower cross it'd be like tight hip flexors weak glutes you know so on and so
2: forth yeah yeah absolutely and i think the weak abdominals would would carry across both as well and i think that like once again uh we've learned more about that stuff along the way so like upper cross syndrome lower cross syndrome is not validated by any research so it's essentially a made-up diagnosis and another example of like The health profession try to assign a label to something that doesn't really exist so i would say that you know we got to be careful with how we try bundle these symptoms together because there's no evidence to say that they're necessarily going to cause someone's pain so when we think about that example of like a big emphasis on let's say pushing type movements and not a lot of like pulling type movements and the first thing you mentioned was like how would that affect posture my answer to that would be in a sense like who really cares how it affects your posture because once again posture is one of those things that doesn't cause pain and you can essentially sit or stand or sleep however you want and if it's comfortable for you then it's not a problem so one of the most common things i hear in my practice is like people say to me oh yeah, I know my posture is not very good. And I always tell them, look, it actually doesn't matter how you sit. Sit however is comfortable. Use your backrest. Don't try to sit up straight all day because that's going to be very fatiguing. But the key is varying the posture across the day. So it's not that we need to sit in a certain way, sit however you're comfortable, but just try not to spend too long there. And I think that when it comes to how that would play out as to like overall risk of injury, I think for me, it comes back to the fact of if your tissues are not exceeding what they can recover from, I don't necessarily see that as being a problem. And if you're recovering from your amount of volume and you're not encountering any issues, then I don't necessarily think there would be a problem of doing a vast amount of anterior sets. Let's call them as opposed to posterior sets. Now, if someone was then encountering a shoulder issue, And they then were like, oh, well, you know what? Like my posterior cuff is really weak. And then they do some posterior cuff exercises and then the shoulder starts feeling better. Like once again, we can postulate that it's because it got stronger, but we also see research where people get given a rehab program that don't get any stronger, but they still improve. So I think often in the bodybuilding world, along with the strength and conditioning and like the rehab world, we try and draw these links but the reality is is like for a lot of these things we just don't understand them fully so it can sound nice and neat to lay it out for someone in like yep we're going to get this stronger we're going to even this up and it's all going to fix it and people might still get a good result from that but we just can't say for sure that the reason is because they have a perfect push to pull ratio or because they got stronger on that side it's like we just don't know that much about how this stuff works
0: mm, i think if you look at it from the premise of like even sport specific so some sports obviously require training of certain areas with greater volumes than others right you think of like a boxer who's probably going to be more anterior dominant with regards to the requirements of their sport than potentially posterior right I mean, surely that that individual is probably going to be doing various exercises to strengthen their back. That sounds it, it, you should because I would I would argue having a strong back would could improve your performance in boxing as well. Uh, so, but 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 likely there may be may be an asymmetry between push and pull, right? But I think in the in the specifics of that, that's not really a bad thing. Like that's kind of needed in terms of the athlete. So I get I guess it, with that with that logic of asymmetries, we would almost attribute. A boxer to immediately having like pain prominent as a result of anterior posterior asymmetry but i don't think that's the case like not every single boxer has issues and pain
2: well i'm pretty sure like if you look at injury incidents in boxing for example because i think that is a really good example of like a very anterior pushing dominant sport i think from the top of my head one of the most common injuries is actually a hand injury so it's like For those people getting injured it's got nothing to do with the push to pull ratio it's got everything to do with the fact that they are smacking their hand into hard objects over and over again so it's like that sort of thing you know can be a lot more injurious rather than this sort of like hypothetical ratio that there's no evidence for that it
1: that it matters essentially so we're going to get the final vote in here lawrence it's a a yes or a no if you do double the amount of work on your front than you were to your back over a 10 year period do you think it would have any even if it's a small amount chance of it increased injury risk despite what the science says in your point of view well, well, yes, well yes or no i right? like, got, got view... to know yeah, no, i got, well, to, know, I've got to know i got to know yes or no part <laughs> of my point of view is
2: guided by the evidence and mm. no like there's i don't think no. there's any evidence to point to that being the case so in that hypothetical situation i wouldn't necessarily say it would put you at increased risk but that's assuming that like you're recovering from that amount of volume because if you're recovering from that volume for a year and you keep doing it you're not exceeding your tissue capacity over and over again so it's not like that anterior work is going to slowly like pull you forward and distort your body like unless you then double the volume again and then you can't recover from it then you might encounter an injury but I don't think the sort of compounding effect that you're implying is there.
0: Don't you think it's also really hard to attribute the exact cause of injury due to a ratio of push and pull? Because like, it's, yeah, so, it's so interrelated into various factors. Let's say I do have a greater, like double the volume of pressing to pulling base movements and I injure my shoulder. But maybe it's got nothing to do with that. It might have been just my overall recovery capacity linked to my lack of sleep, higher amounts of stress associated with various other factors within my life. I then go to my clinician who tells me, hey, like you, you know, you notice you've got a really like poor amount of push to pull, you know, in terms of the ratio. And all of a sudden starts providing guidance, de- decatastrophizes like the fact that, you know, you're injured right now and you're scared about your, your relationship within the sport. Like, is it going to continue? You're going to, And all of a sudden provides assurance and all of a sudden that injury decreases. And suddenly I've linked it to it. I've attributed it to the fact that I've suddenly started training back uh, or more back volume when that actually may not have been the case at all. Like we know the complexity of pain is it's like the psychological influence associated with our perception of pain and the pain experience is so vast that it's almost impossible to identify an exact cause. Don't you think?
2: Yeah. And just on that as well, like a concept that we talk about a lot in injury management is this idea of natural history. And essentially what that refers to is if I just leave this alone and don't do anything about this, how long roughly will it take for this to get better? So, you know, some injuries, like in a sense, time is one of the biggest factors and you're almost giving people rehab exercises to do to keep them busy while natural history fixes whatever this issue is so like for something like subacromial shoulder pain which is normally going to be down to like a bursitis issue or a tendinopathy of the rotator cuff you know you're probably looking at like a a six month to one year natural history now yes there's evidence that an exercise program will speed that up but even if someone does nothing eventually it will just dissipate and go away so sometimes you can have these instances where you know, a rehab professional has convinced you that it's this and this and this that has caused a an improvement in, you know, whatever injury you may have had. When in actuality, we know that regardless of what you do, it's probably just going to get better. Low back pain is a great example. If you've just sustained a bit of a low back strain, there's no nerve or disc involvement, you've just strained a muscle, in four to six weeks, it will probably be back to 100%. Now, yes, there's stuff you can do to speed that up a little bit, but even if you did nothing it would probably just go back to normal in a couple, in a month and a bit. So Mm. I think natural history is important to consider there as well.
0: I think it's also different for like acute pain and and chronic pain as well, right? Like I think they they need to be categorized differently. And if I actually have uh, something physiologically wrong, like, I mean, if I've got severe disc herniation and that requires surgery, uh, you know, I, I guess in that instance, you're probably not going to just go, yeah, wait, wait. And you, hopefully it just gets better. Like there's there's probably surgical intervention that's required to perhaps assist that as a last resort, particularly if you've explored all options. So there's like, I feel like you can never umbrella everything within within rehabilitation and pain, don't you think? Because I think it can be taken to an extreme in various cases with regards to uh ideals or mindset or things like that because someone with chronic pain would listen to that and go oh lawrence just said wait four months and my pain's going to disappear or like someone who has fibromyalgia or something like that where there is probably psychological conditioning that needs to be uh performed in order to decatastrophize the injury and work on it from a different angle which is a completely different topic i guess in, in itself right like physiological pain psychological pain I guess all pain is really psychological at the end of the day.
1: There we go. What do I know? I wasn't a physio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it's like, it's fair enough. And
2: at the end of the day, like I think some of these coaches who maybe will like preach that message or a physio that might preach that message. Like there's not, there's not a whole lot wrong with it in the sense where like, they're not doing bad. They're not having malicious intentions, but what it can do is it it can make people a little bit more like hyper aware of these things where if they sort of look at their program and they're, you know, they're worrying about like the exact push-pull ratio when realistically these things don't matter. So I think a big part of it is sometimes just like reassuring people that, you know what, these are very minute things in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, in my opinion, like a, a vast majority of injury management like many things comes back to the basics, you know, are you recovering overall? Are you sleeping well? Are you fueling yourself adequately? Is your stress under control? Do you like your life? Like genuinely, like those are sort of the most important things around pain. And like, you know, there's much more significant predictors of injury, such as, you know, work stress, psychological stress, um, overall poorer health, those things are going to be much more indicative of an injury than like the push pull ratio or something like that. It's you could literally talk about this for two hours and not even scratch the surface. And especially yeah, that's like exactly what, what we're, were going to get done here. Buckle up BDU. <laughs> we're going to get stuck in.
0: The biopsychosocial the model of health. There yeah. go. Oh, Boom, yeah. go.
1: <laughs> we'll get a round table going on Lawrence's podcast next week. It'll be sorted. It'll be settled. Yep, yeah exactly right. no. well if it was all that, i heard it in settled... that was push pull legs that's all i heard that was going in my mind and Lawrence was saying push pull model i'm just oh what a magical program perfectly balanced <laughs> too but we're not going to go down that, that rabbit hole again are we yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> just remember that the iliac pull down will balance out your entire life
2: if you do yeah, that exactly
0: right yeah fine. so i mean if you're if you're, if you're, you're s- pressing like 20 exercises per chest and you've at least got three sets of iliac pulls that's balanced to me, right?
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, actually, we've got another question here, which is still to do with uh, with training, but what's the ideal for a leg extension? I guess with regards to uh, quadricep recruitment or quadricep stimulus, uh, plantar flexion or dorsiflexion of the, of the calf. So are we pointing the toes away from us or are we pulling the toes towards us when we're doing a leg extension? Like what do you think provides the best tension to the quads or does it even matter
1: i don't think it necessarily matters too much probably what's more comfortable for the individual i normally pretty much like try and pull my toes back to me but that but that exact time i'm not visually thinking at that time to pull my toes back to me it just sits naturally for me and it Mm. feels the best so that's Mm. what i do
0: what do you think lauren do you have any do you have much of a take on that
1: Yeah, because I mean,
2: I'm trying to think about it on like a a biomechanical standpoint. So like the main thing we're changing if you dorsiflex your ankle is you're then putting your gastrocs under stretch. Now we do know that like the gastrocs do attach just above the knee. So in theory, with the calves under stretch, maybe it offers a bit more resistance into a fully knee extended position, like very weakly. Um, But I think that just intuitively it always like for me it feels weird to extend on a leg extension with my ankle plantar flexed like i'll always mm, do it flexed yeah. because it just feels better and i don't really know if i have a good mechanistic reason
1: for it feeling better other than it just does yeah do you, do you cue yourself when you're doing it to like pull your toe because for me it just naturally is there to be like dorsiflexed. i, I like, don't even think about it but yeah. i know mm-hmm. that i would be dorsiflexing essentially as much
2: as I can. I don't know if, you know, potentially, you know, maybe creating tension like through the back of the calf or tension through the the ant is just like feels better when you do it. Um, I, Yeah, I don't really have a good reason sort of scientifically, but I just think yeah. we all do it. Like, my... I don't see too many people pointing their toes on a leg yeah. extension.
0: Well, my thoughts would be like, if you were to a flex, so point your toe away from you, you would have the gastroc shortening and the gastroc is a like a a weak synergist to knee flexion right so i mean whether that creates some sort of reciprocal inhibition of of the quads in a way potentially because you've got some great point you've got some torque developed around the knee which would create knee flexion so it's you know what i mean so it's i i feel like it would probably be more ideal like you wouldn't run the risk of having any Reciprocal inhibition, even if it's not a thing, and I'm just I'm just speculating this, but I think if you were just to point your toes towards you, then that's probably the the best position to be in. Like you, then you don't run the risk of any reciprocal inhibition of of the quads due to the gastroc shortening, creating a slight degree of knee flexion tension. Uh, I guess that would be my thoughts. And I also have used that cue of like point, try and almost point your toes up towards towards you at the end of the movement, at the end of a leg extension. Because I think it it actually helps some people to try and forcibly control that end range of knee extension. Because I feel like some people can kind of just come up to the top and then immediately just let the weight pull themselves straight back and down into a bottom position, particularly if they're just not controlling the tempo. So if you were to forcibly think about pulling the toe towards you in the top range, you might just assist in controlling the entirety of the movement.
2: Yeah, I'd also like wonder if you have an opinion on this like do you think there would be a big difference whether or not you were actively contracting the calf into end of range plantar flexion versus just trying to relax your ankle so that you're not actually getting a lot of active muscle activity at the calf but once again i think both of those would feel very weird and i think perhaps the position that your foot is normally in actually on the pad you know like it fades because most people are almost going to hook in and in order to do that, they need to dorsiflex.
0: Mm, do you mean in a calf raise?
2: No, no, no. So like in the leg extension, like do yeah, you think yeah. it would make a difference whether or not your so let's use like the plants are flexed as the mm, example. Mm. So whether or not your ankle is just kind of flaccid and you're not actually tensing the calf and you're just relaxing your ankle versus actually pointing the calf specifically and tensing the calf
0: yeah i'm not too sure then in
2: theory you wouldn't get that like reciprocal inhibition
0: yeah that's very true that's very true but i like i think of it also from this perspective that by me essentially uh dorsiflexing it allows me to hook my ankle around the pad more so so like i feel like i'm just locked into position better so that i can then concentrate on my knee extension as opposed to any likeliness of the pad moving as a response to me, the pointing the toe or having a relaxed ankle position.
2: Yeah, no, I'd agree with all that. And I think it also is just like one of those things where maybe there's not a good mechanistic reason, but I challenge
1: anyone to just try it and see what feels better.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: My, cool. my only caveat to that would be if it's all pull and no push, could it increase injury risk to the calf, Florence? You'll blow I'm out gonna... your ACL. <laughs> yeah your acl will leave the I, I actually like to alternate them like one foot then the other 100 <laughs> percent.
2: I, I mean and if you're serious about it you'll actually do it through range during mm, the set yeah. and you'll just yeah. have that calf pumping away and then you don't need to train calves which none of yeah. us do anyway but
0: mm, i guess you could ask a similar question with regards to hamstring curl right pointing the toes or pulling pulling the toes towards you because essentially if you were to like, I've heard some clinicians talk about plantar flexing. So basically pointing the toe away from you in like a hamstring curl, because basically by plantar flexing, you shorten the gastroc, if the gastroc is shortened, it can no longer contribute to a uh, knee flexion. So some would say, oh, you get better. Therefore direction of, of tension to the hamstrings. But then I look at it from the perspective that I'm probably going to use significantly less weight. Like I've tried to, and I have to really drop my lo- the weight down. So whether it's beneficial or not, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's necessary to really get good hamstring recruitment. What do you think, Lawrence?
2: I'd agree. And I think once again, it's sort of, it's easy to think about this stuff in a vacuum where we've just got muscles operating and it's like, Oh, okay. You know, in theory, this will place more load in the hamstrings. So that'll lead to better hypertrophy or better strength or whatever. But you know, like we, we don't operate as humans, like one muscle at a time, we work as a synergistic functioning machine. So it's sort of like coming back to a lot of that EMG research where it's like, yes, that might cause greater muscle activity, but that doesn't actually necessarily correlate to greater hypertrophy. Whereas Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, better internal stimulus, being able to use more load over time and just genuinely feeling, because once again, I think that would feel awkward in that situation. Like, uh, like trying to point the toe during a leg curl. I don't think that would feel as comfortable. So I think those factors are a lot more important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I almost Uh, think with that logic that, you know you want to isolate just that particular muscle then that logic would apply to something like you know don't worry about ever shoulder pressing just do front raises like for all of your pressing volume for, for delts or you know similarly with regards to back like just so you target your lats always do a, a you know a, a a cable pullover or something like that right or a dumbbell pullover never do any sort of row that involves elbow flexion as well which is just not logical
1: I'm the same as you, DC? Like, well, where, where I've obviously tried it and it feels somewhat weird, even though logically you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to get more hamstring, or whatever it might be. But then it might feel like you might get contraction more, but like in the end, you're reducing the load by like 25%. Like it takes away a lot of load. So then it's like, all right, now what is actually probably going to contribute to more growth. Um. So yeah.
0: Mm, I, and I feel like you end up, the the result in the end of the set is that you still end up fatiguing the hamstrings. So uh, the, the, the adaptation is likely to be similar, right? Like you're still going to take the hamstrings to a viable proximity of fatigue slash failure. And as a result, you'll get that mechano transduction of MPS and you'll build muscle mass from it. I just don't like, it's kind of like missing the forest for the trees. You know what I mean? Like just focusing on these little tiny details. So, uh, yes, cool. All right. Next question, boys. Well, uh, what is the best macro split for a bodybuilder in the off-season? Do you guys use percentages for your prescription, D-Y, when it comes to prescribing macros?
1: No, nah, I don't. I normally calculate stuff off grams, um, depending on like what the individual... like Are they getting a lot of activity throughout the day? Are they getting large amounts of steps? And I'll kind of work out like the grams per body weight, and then I'll go from there. Uh, Mm. but not necessarily like percentages. I know that was kind of big, probably about like 10 years ago. Everyone was calculating like stuff off like percentages. you got to have a 30, 30, what was it? 40 split or something in terms of like your macros, if you're building where now it's like, I'm more or less like give their protein goal off their body weight Mm. slash grams per kilo. And then pretty much somewhat similar for fats in terms of their daily activity, how many steps they get. And then obviously rest over goes to the allocation of carbohydrates.
0: Mm, yeah, I'm I'm very similar. Like I'll I'll set a a calorie goal. I'll set a protein based off grams per kilo of body weight. Just because it doesn't make sense to 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 prescribe protein off a percentage because some people could have could be in a diet phase and have a, you know really low calories and therefore you know 30% of those calories represents a much smaller amount uh than if they were in a building phase. So and you probably want to keep you know, uh, protein relatively consistent or even higher within a diet phase, right? Um, I do consider a percentage for fats, just because I think regardless of whether someone's in a building phase or an off season phase, you have to be cognizant of like how low you pull fats down. I feel like in a diet phase, it's you know warranted to to bring to bring fats down. It's probably the the macronutrient which is least specific to retaining performance in training, and uh, but but in the off season, I would be cognizant of keeping fats way too low. And I think some coaches do keep it super low. And even in the off season, I feel like it becomes very restrictive for the athlete to therefore consume anything that has trace fats in it. They almost have to consider always eating like light milk or drinking light milk or skim milk. And like they can never opt for anything that has higher fats. And I think often those individuals are perhaps limiting their ability to, you know, potentially just push calories up higher conveniently Uh, given that they're not pulling too much away from carbohydrates, given it is the more specific fuel which we utilize for resistance-based training.
1: I think a lot of the flexibility within the diet comes from the actual fats. Like, you know, as soon as you start adding more fat in, the clients able to get more flexible with the, with their actual intake throughout the day. So I feel like that's a way of somewhat giving back to them like in terms of flexibility. Like when you're in prep, you can have those fats somewhat on the lower end. But then now as you want to get to that like 80, 90% adherence rate in the off season, you know, allocating a larger chunk towards those fats is, you know, a good little start as well.
0: Mm, absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Cool. Uh, this one's a pretty deep question. What do you think? Uh, do you do you guys think the rise of AI will affect bodybuilding and coaching? This is actually your question, Lawrence. What do you think, man?
2: Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because, you know, there's quite a lot of buzz about AI and like chat GPT and stuff at the moment. And you know, I've heard a few podcasts talk about it. And yeah, I was just interested to hear what you guys had to say. I think that from my perspective, you know, there to a certain level will always be a, a human aspect to it. And I think that the the art of coaching will, will never be able to quite be replicated when it comes to like a, a computer that's just sort of getting inputs and then giving you outputs. Because, you know, obviously I'm not a contest prep coach, but for you guys, like, you know, there's some days where you would make a decision for an athlete and and maybe you don't have hard data to justify what you're doing, but because you've seen it before, you have a hunch and you do it. And I just don't think like a... I
1: think Lawrence is gone. Oh, there he goes. Oh, did you lose me, boys? Yeah. Yeah,
0: I thought that was me because like D.Y. was sitting really still. And I was was, like like, looking at him, I
1: could see like tiny little... And uh, Lawrence got bitten by the Dodo internet that doesn't fly.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, 100%. And dear listener, if you think I'm going to waste my time to go back and edit that out, you're mistaken. So you can sit in that silence and think about what you've done. Um, But... (laughs) Yeah. As I was saying, I think that there's always that like intangible, you know, decisions that get made in a prep because a coach has the experience and they have a hunch and they do it. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. So I don't think you could ever quite
1: replicate that with a machine. Mm. I a hundred percent agree. And it's, I also think with my my like coaching service and probably goes the same for DC, Jack, Lawrence. Like there's so much that goes into a contest prep that just wouldn't be able to be replicated from an AI. Like looking over poses, like certain tweaks, techniques, exercise selection, like, and so on like that. There's just so many little things that add up. Like you might be able to go to the AI and be like, hey, my weight hasn't dropped this week. What do you think we should drop the macros to? They might be able to spit you out some macros, but are they going to make these final little tweaks to posing? Are they going to be helping you back? stage like tan up are they going to be making like all like these finer little adjustments to peak weeks like you know there's so many different approaches to peak weeks how much carbohydrates are you fat loading are you carb loading like what days are high what days are low like what's the ratio and you're never ever going to get that in depth from an ai so um mm-hmm. and even like the emotional side of it like that's the downside of an ai it doesn't have emotion so it's like you know if someone's struggling and they really do need help like you know you can chat to them you can help them through that you can actually give them the emotion they need back. Um, it's just, there's too many things I just don't think would be able to be replicated within mm. the coaching space, unless you were a robot and said, hey, what macros do I need to hit? And what's a good all-rounded program? They could probably spit you out that shit, but that's about mm. it.
0: Well, I mean, there is AI in the coaching space already, right? I mean, Lane Norton did something like Carbon, which I'm not sure is something else now. Um I think a lot of like the the apps are using sort of an AI system to somewhat replicate what your macros should be and step adjustments and things like that. You know, I think like you said Lawrence, the art of coaching is 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 more than just prescription of those variables. It's also the emotional support. And I also think that the more specific and niche you you are such as the the finer details with regards to a connes prep, the more challenging it would be for an AI to generate recommendations in a way in which it's going to be well received by the athlete and they're going to be able to apply and have trust in um, because there's so much, like we said, there's so much more to coaching than just simply, Hey, here's your macros for the week, you know, see it, see you later. Um, funnily speaking about the whole AI system. I, I use loom as like a, a video recording software to, um to record my videos. And then basically I, I email through those videos and, and the athlete can watch that for their, for their check-in. Now, I've noticed that within the last week or so, it started to like generate these like summaries in my in my. I mean, I'm sure you guys are smiling, so you probably noticed yeah. it's there as well. And I'm actually fascinating because sometimes I read it and it's like not far off actually what I would have spoken about within within the check in in terms of recommendations and the summary and everything like that. And then there's other times where I'm re- I read it and I'm like, this definitely needs to be reworded because it's so it's taking things out of context that I've said and that's not how I've I've uh, I've I've delivered it. And i always change the summary because I'm not happy with it. But I, I find it really interesting that they're starting to create systems within software such as this that is basically picking up on various keywords that I'm saying within the check-in. It's probably tallying up the amount of words that I say, nutrition, da-da-da-da, training, da-da-da-da, posing, whatever it may be. And then it's kind of fabricating this summary based on it. So I see these things like happening more and more, right? In society where there's more automation coming into play
1: maybe we are going to get replaced. They're just pulling all the info from our cat coaching dashboards right now. And we're done. All these posing adjustments are making on Loom. And the next thing you know, we're gone. Loom's going full AI coaching yeah, service. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, done.
0: yeah. I'm just imagining like a client reaching out to you on email. Hey man, like so thankful of the check-in that you sent me this week. And it's like, hang on, I didn't send you a check-in. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go onto your Google Sheets. It's already been filled in. The recommendations are there. It's just AI generated. What the
2: yeah <laughs> yeah it is actually yeah because i i didn't actually notice the summaries but i was noticing that it was starting to like give me a title recommendation yeah and like sometimes that even be like an emoji in it and things like that and yeah, i was like yeah, yeah you know it would like sort of pick out obviously like keywords that were repeated so like most of the titles for my check-ins were you know do you want to name this you don't want it bad enough because that's essentially yeah. the only feedback I give my clients. Mm, I just, just tell the them st- that they don't stop, have that dog.
0: Stop in sign, you know, as the emoji. Yeah, just giant yeah stop sign. exactly. Yeah, I was talking to one of my athletes about just the uh, fiber and prep and, you know, uh, recommendations and things like that. And it must have fixated on that word because it was something like check-in and fiber. And then it had basically the emoji of like like wheat.
1: <laughs> Broccoli. Oh, <no. laughs>
0: yeah. As like the, uh yeah, the emoji. I was like, wow, this is crazy. I'm definitely going to adjust that. <laughs>
2: Oh, mate! Like, if there's one sure way to like clickbait Jack Radford Smith into a title is put put fiber in the title. I mean, (laughs) the man he can't get enough of it. He loves the Mm. stuff.
0: Mm. 30 grams
2: per thousand calories. Apparently, yeah. I hope that. Um, I think it's like Abdullah is the main coach. That's like not a joke. I'm pretty sure the main O2 guys. Um, I just hope he's just at least given Jack a bit of fiber. You know how like, you know, maybe it's not optimal, but you still do stuff for your athletes to like kind of appease them, you know, make them happy. You might give them like a bit of a, a booty band finisher or, you know, give them like a meal off. I think that Jack's equivalent would be like, just let him still hit three digits of fiber. Like let him still get above <laughs> that
1: hundred grams a day and he'll be happy. Instead of the high carb days, he's got high fiber days. Yeah. hundred yeah, yeah. percent.
0: I can't imagine smashing a hundred grams of fiber a day. Like, I'm going through at least six rolls a day in toilet paper
2: at that stage. What do you, what
0: do you guys reckon? Or none? Yeah, or- yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Depending on the solubility, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What Jack doesn't tell you is that his one thousand calorie shake is a like half of its metamucil. Yeah. He
1: just he loves the stuff. He's got a plumber on standby, that's for sure. <laughs> Every week, got a, a, he doesn't a need a cleaner. He's Yeah, he's got a full-time plumber that comes around every Friday, empties the tank.
0: <laughs> the name's Tierra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dear. All right, boys. Well, uh, I think that wraps up today's uh, episode of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. Thanks again for joining us today. If you love today's episode, remember to give us a subscribe and an awesome review. And we will certainly see you in the next episode.